0: Good morning. I'm glad to be with you during this time of online worship. I'm very excited about the fact that regardless of this setting, we're still the church. The church, not just locally, but globally, the people of God, followers of Jesus do not become defined simply by a particular setting geographically or by a particular church name or denomination. Church becomes defined by followers of Christ. And I'm grateful that although we're in this virtual setting, we are still the church, if indeed our faith is in Christ. And I pray that your faith is in Jesus. And I'm excited to share with you five facts about church as community. Today, we are taking a brief a hiatus from our study series, The Mind Matters. And our thoughts turn to church as community. Today at King's Grand Baptist, we are celebrating Community Sunday. Our church vision involves three core values. The first of those expresses community. Webster defines community as a group of people united together and belonging together. And so today we celebrate church as community. The New York Times hosted an article concerning Chinese immigrants in the United States who were actually meeting for church by phone. I just have to tell you this story. It's phenomenal. Perhaps you've heard this before. But if you've ever considered Uh, how the church becomes community, this story will certainly answer that question. More than 100 people, as a part of this Chinese church, call each night to the Church of Grace in Manhattan's Chinatown, where the pastor leads them in hymn singing and Bible study by phone. The immigrants who participate are spread out around the United States, many of them working bone-wearying 12-hour shifts in different occupations. But not speaking English, they feel isolated and lonely. But using their cell phones, they gather together and they sing praises to God over the phone and they participate in Bible study Together, these far-flung, hard workers have come to form a virtual church on Monday through Thursday nights, deriving spiritual sustenance and companionship. One member, Mr. Chin, writes, It's like there's a giant net connecting people from all different places together. He said that the Bible study offered him a lifeline and a rare chance to escape. For us brothers and sisters who are out of state, he said the Bible study over the phone is central to our lives. Sometimes the Bible study participants ask questions. Sometimes they share news about their lives and they pray for each other. Though unable to see, they form a powerful community. Grace flows to them and through them to the world. What an appropriate narrative for the church. They form a powerful community and grace flows to them and through them to the world. This becomes a powerful and accurate narrative of the church, not because they are forced to meet virtually, because at this point in the life of that particular church, they have no other option. But this becomes an amazing narrative of the church, because despite their separation and their decentralization, they have community. They have togetherness in worship and through the word. You know, sometimes I I wonder if If that experience of community is not even felt by those who do gather in the same building, in the same location. Here are a group of followers of Jesus scattered throughout the United States in a foreign land. Not able to speak the language of of the land that they are inhabiting. but, But they still connect in worship and through studying the scriptures. Because for them, church has become community. Today I'd like to share with you five facts concerning church as community. Church becomes more than the building. We, we know this. Church becomes more than just the respective name on the building. We know this as well. Church represents community, a togetherness, a connectedness that can truly only be created by the love of Christ. And so if you have become burdened as of late, concerning all of the functions of the church, hold tight to this refreshing truth that church represents community. Yes, church exists in a particular community, just as our church does here on the Little Neck Peninsula in Virginia Beach. But church doesn't just exist in a particular geographical location. Church exists not simply in a community, but as a community. So let me share with you five facts of church as community. I believe these facts will change your life and my life and change our church. Fact number one, we are a community as one new man. Church as community, I've moved ahead just a bit, I'm sorry. Church as community represents that we are a community as one new man. Now we begin the reading of scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 19a. That little letter represents the first half of that verse. We have to pause there because something significant takes place in the reading of these specific verses. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Jesus did away with the law of commandments in its regulations, so that he might create in himself, are you ready for this? One new man from the other two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, and put the hostility to death By the cross, the hostility between those two different men, he made them to become one man. Let's continue reading. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father, to God. There is only one way to be at peace with God and with each other, and that is through Jesus. This becomes the message of Paul. Verse 19, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. I'd like to share with you just a couple of facts of community as one new man. The the identity of one new man actually references one unified people, and Paul's writings from the first century church recording Ephesians chapter 2 references the one unified people of God as, as one new man. And this becomes emphasized because of a change of status for Jews and Gentiles. I believe Paul writes here primarily to Gentiles, those people who are not of the Jewish culture, of the Hebraic tradition of following after Jehovah. And so there was a change in status for the Gentiles. No longer were they kept out, But they were brought in no longer were the Jews uh, encouraged or conditioned to see themselves as exclusively belonging to God because God took two men who were actually hostile to one another. Uh, the, The idea of man again is used analogously to represent the identity of a specific people or their status. So God took the status of Jews and the status of Gentiles, Jews who saw themselves exclusively belonging to God and Gentiles who who felt that they were excluded from God. And Jesus came and changed their status and brought two men who were opposed one to another together as one new man. So the first fact of the one new man is that the status was changed because of what Jesus did on the cross. No longer was there any requirement of an obligation to the law. Jesus freed man from that condemnation of the law and made us right with God through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He did that for the Jew and for the Gentile. You know, even in the the stringent Hebraic law, there were uh, certain requirements and regulations that discounted the Gentiles and excluded them. But now, because Jesus came and died for all men so that all men might have an opportunity to know him and to have sins forgiven and to be drawn into a relationship with him, the two opposing men, Jews and Gentiles, became one. The two different places of status became unified in peace because of what Jesus did on the cross. So we as a church reference That one new man, because we continue reading in these verses and we discover that those who followed Jesus in the first century, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles were being identified here, thus referencing the church. And so that continues to this very moment. We as a church are a community as one new man. Verse 15, no longer uh, bound by the law, but by God's grace. Verse 16, God has reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to himself. Jews needed reconciliation through Christ to God just as much as the Gentiles. I love that word reconciliation. apokataleso, meaning to be brought back together. Verse 17, the good news of peace became the message, peace with one another and peace with God. Verse 18, we could we could have access to God, both Jews and Gentiles, because of our faith in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And then the opening of verse 19 becomes the phenomenal statement of this one new man. Verse 19, so we then are no longer foreigners and strangers. I love this emphasis that Jews who felt like they were exclusively God's, but but although adhering to rites and rituals had denied Jesus and Gentiles who had felt excluded and not worthy were brought together in peace because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross as he became a sacrifice for our sin Two opposing entities had their status changed. It became one new man. I love how Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 gives the appraisal of this one new man. Listen to these words. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. Because of what Christ has done, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. These couplets that this verse presents, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female, are not being combined in their identity, but are being recognized that at one time they were fiercely opposed for whatever reason, be it gender, be it nationality, be it a, a social status. But now, because they were both in the church, men and women, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free men, The scripture emphasizes your human title does not separate you one from another. Christ has brought peace. Christ has brought harmony. And Christ has brought brought togetherness. This identifies the community as one new man. So the church as community uh, presents this first fact from Ephesians chapter two. We are a community as one new man, as, as a unified people with one centrality, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins so that we could be brought together. Fact number two, we are a community of supernatural existence. I really love what we begin to read in the next two verses, verses 19 and 20. And we continue to read from Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20. We're, we're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, consider how the church as community exists as a supernatural existence. We have been created by God in Christ to be this one new man. This becomes a supernatural existence, the church as community. Significant so are the two terms... We are no longer foreigners and strangers, but instead we are members of God's household. We are no longer on the outside looking in. We are now brought in, not just as a visitor, but as a member of the family. With great intention, the scriptures use the phrase God's household. This becomes a phenomenal emphasis of this supernatural Existence that we could be called the family of God. The pater familias in the Latin gives us the meaning of the father as the head. This becomes the emphasis of the phrase members of God's household that we read here in verse 19. We're no longer strangers, we're no longer foreigners. The idea of foreigner in the Greek actually indicates. Perhaps someone like a tourist who, who visits another place but doesn't belong to that place. And then the idea of a stranger, a more literally translated alien, would represent someone who might have what we would know as a visa in a, another country, yet could not actually act as a true citizen. And so these two terms resonated in the readership of this letter to the Ephesus church. The original hearers of these words. These words, uh, stranger and alien, resonated well because they understood that these two terms designated individuals as non-citizens not belonging at all. And here, the word of God proclaims for you and for me as members of the church, of the body of Christ, that we are not like that foreigner, that stranger or that alien, but we have been brought in. We have been brought in not as a visitor, not as a participant, not even as someone who is who is a distantly related. We have been brought in to the household of God, signifying the pater familial in the Latin. Signifying that God as the Father has brought us in. And so we hear that sweet refrain from, from Romans chapter 8, verse 15. We have been adopted and given the Spirit the condition of being adopted as, as God's child. We hear another powerful message from John chapter 1, verse 12. We've been given the right to become children of God. This references a, a significant Supernatural existence because we who were sinners and strangers and foreigners, aliens and and even hostile enemies against God because we were living our own way. When Jesus changed us, when our faith was placed in him and our lives were were completely reconciled to God, which indeed is the promise of scripture. Read second Corinthians chapter five, and you'll hear that we have been reconciled, brought back to God and not just brought back as a church member we've been brought back as members of god's household we we belong to him, and even even yes, church membership is really really good and really important, but that is the superficial essence of who we are as part of the body of Christ as part of the church we've been brought into the household of God as children of God, this most certainly references a very clear supernatural existence. Now, imagine for just a moment, again, God's plan in the world. God's plan in the world references uh, a twofold purpose. Uh, We've heard this. We've discussed this as we've studied God's word. God's plan is first to bring glory to himself and second to reconcile all that was broken to himself. God raised up men like Moses and And Abraham and and Joseph and David. And he raised up dear women of God uh, to to be individuals upon whom God wrote and illustrated his plan. His plan to bring himself glory and to reconcile what was broken was beautifully illustrated on, on the real lives of real individuals that we see recorded in the scriptures. And from the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we now see a shift in God's plan. Having been illustrated on the lives of real people in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament that God begins to fulfill His plan in the church, the church of Jesus Christ, where Jesus, according to Colossians 1.18, is the exalted head. There's, there's no other head of the church than Jesus. And all of the beautiful Illustrations of lives being changed as recorded in the New Testament point back to God's work in Christ manifested in the church. And so Acts chapter 2 references the birth and the, the beginning of the church and then the church of the first century began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And here we sit today as individuals who've been changed by Jesus and have been made a part of of the church, the body of Christ, as scripture references, the fellowship of believers, as the scripture also references. And so the church indeed signifies a supernatural existence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, made this observation. Community is not simply an idea of church that we must realize, but a reality created by God in Christ in which we get to participate. I'll say that again. Community is not simply an idea of the church that we must realize, but a reality created by God in Christ in which we get to participate. God has created through Christ the community of the church, and we've been brought in as a part of that. This is a supernatural existence. This is not an institution of policies and procedures, although they may be there to help curve some of the chaos and confusion of how order can, can be lived out. But the church is much more than, than the, the, the policy. The church is much more than programs or location. We're a community supernaturally created by God in Christ in which we are privileged and graced to participate. Okay, this takes us to a third fact. A third factor of church is community. We are a community that prioritizes the presence of God. Now, this references something very significant, and we read down again in Ephesians 2 to verse 21 and 22. The whole building, referencing the analogy of God's household in verse 19, Uh, The whole building built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. The whole building is being fitted together in Christ and is growing up into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Now, we read in verse 20 that the household of God, you and I, in this supernatural existence we know as the church, the community of believers... Uh, Also builds upon the prophets and the apostles, verse 19 said, referencing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament prophets, the the apostles, all preached and proclaimed Jesus. And and we know from the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 3.11, there's no other foundation to be laid other than Jesus Christ. And so the apostles and prophets in, in verse 20 referenced the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, upon which... The church has her foundation. And, and so because of this, we continue to read that the whole church is being built up, fitted together and growing. Are you ready for this beautiful, illustrious term as a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built up for God's dwelling in the spirit. Uh, there becomes reference here to very significant facts of God's presence Fact number one, he dwells in the assembly of the believers. This becomes proven in the opening of verse 21. The whole building, the whole family of God and household of God is being built up, raised up. It's raising up a word that actually indicates growing to become a holy sanctuary the phrase household of god earlier mentioned can almost have a a, a connotation of of an architectural reference of a, of an actual building but now in verse 21 we we consider that the whole building is growing and rising up almost as if it's organically spreading out so we lose that structure uh, architectural analogy and now we find that the picture of the church is very living and spreading and growing but we're growing up into a sanctuary not limited by walls and and rafters and and concrete foundations but we are growing into a living sanctuary that references a holy sanctuary signifying God's presence with his people as they come together and then verse 22 the emphasis turns from the gathering to the to the Strong emphasis of you who follow Jesus, you. Each one of you would better be the reference from the Greek. Each one of you also is an indication of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So God's presence dwells among the believers and dwells within the believers. These become the two significant facts of God's presence with us. His presence through the Holy Spirit as the believers gather and His presence with us personally. Uh, Ephesians 4.30 and other verses promises that we, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He abides in the life of the believer. So the church here becomes a strong, strong uh, emphasis of, of the Holy Spirit's presence, of God's presence with us. And the church must, as a community, prioritize that God's presence is with us. We, we would not dare imagine God's presence not abiding with us. But I, I, I certainly sense in over 30 years of pastoral leadership that at times we can become more concerned about how easily I can be present at church as opposed to ordering my approach to worship so that I can recognize God's presence with us. Sometimes the smallest inclination can, can break my desire of being present at church. But, but my concern should, should, should move to joining the gathered believers and desiring that God would abide with us as we gather to worship him. You may recall in 1 Samuel chapter 4, one of the most disturbing stories of the Old Testament, perhaps of the whole scripture, uh, this uh, story in 1 Samuel 4, particularly verse 21 and 22, references a child being born and that child being named Ichabod. Well, the child belonged to a lady who is unnamed. She was married to Phinehas. Phinehas was one of two sons that belonged to Eli. Both sons were killed in battle between Israel and, and the Philistines when the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And as the report of Phineas's death came and the Ark being absent, Phineas's wife, Uh, had had been expecting a child. She gave birth to a son and she named him Ichabod. Translated in the Hebrew, God's glory has departed. She mourned, not just the death of her husband and the loss of the battle, but she mourned that God's presence uh, uh, signified and symbolized powerfully and divinely in the Ark of the Covenant had been lost. And so this meaning, uh, God's glory has departed, or the word can literally mean inglorious, non-glorious references a horrific thought of God's glory departing from his people. Oh, I pray that we as a community will always desire to be a community that prioritizes the presence of God, that we would come to him in a gathering humbly, that we would come to him personally in our own lives, humbly uh, through Christ and through our devotion and love for him, through faith in Christ. Oh, that we would come to God in worship and in service. And in the proclamation of the word, desiring his presence to dwell with us. We are indeed a community that prioritizes the presence of God. Uh, in his book, Sacred Roots, John Tyson quotes from the Barner Research Group uh, a, a statement about what the millennials have noticed in the church of recent years. Millennials, he quotes, have, have noticed that in many parts of church life, there seems to be a a lack of recognizing God's presence. In fact, 20% of millennials in a particular survey from Barna Research State that they believe God is the missing ingredient from the church. Can you imagine someone coming into the community of believers and not recognizing that, that we are focused on God and upon Jesus? Can you imagine someone coming in to a faith assembly And saying to themselves, I think God's missing. There's so much activity and so much focus on man. It's as if God is missing. Oh, may it never be. May our focus and our passion be to always prioritize a desire to be in God's presence, both corporately and personally. Now we come to a fourth fact. We're moving toward the end of this list of five facts of church's community. And the fourth fact invites us from Ephesians 2 to Ephesians chapter 4. So we turn over just two chapters and we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, a very unique passage that actually describes a deep core essence of the church. And the fourth fact of church's community states that we are a community fundamentally built upon the identity of Jesus Christ. At our very basic existence, we are built upon the identity of Jesus, not our name, not the heritage of of forerunners of the particular local church, not the name of the pastor, nor denomination, not even a a theological stance, but we are built upon the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hear these verses, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, and we read, and he, meaning Jesus, gave some in the church to be prophets, evangelists, pastors, apostles and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, notice first, as you hear these verses read, there rings with familiarity certain aspects of church that we can identify with in our own lives. We heard a reference to offices within the church, such as pastor, evangelist, teacher. Pastor and teacher, I believe, could be synonymous here as the same office. Apostles, perhaps, uh, would be familiar with you as well. These reference leadership in the church. But as we continue to read this passage, we also uh, became familiar and reacquainted with such phrases as acts of service, and ministries. These types of expressions all ring with with strong familiarity because they certainly define the church then and now. We understand church leadership and certain offices. We understand certain activity within the church that can be recognized as services and as uh, ministries. But, But notice something unique here. All of these different expressions of church point to a singular goal. None of these entities reference the goal in and of themselves. The offices, the leadership titles, do not represent the goal. Uh, No pastor, no missionary, no leader, uh, no no deacon, no elder uh, should ever say their goal is to simply have an office. It's it's a good thing to aspire to serve the church in these callings, but the, the calling themselves would not be the end goal of the church. The church has but one Goal, And that goal becomes referenced here. No particular ministry or expression of service should reference the ultimate goal. There are many expressions of how a church can serve and minister, but but none would would exclusively identify the goal of the church. The goal of the church references a singular goal. And that goal becomes highlighted here very clearly and powerfully until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son. Herein lies the goal, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. The goal referenced here expresses the fullness of Christ and that we as individual Christians are brought together uh, into a a mature man, into a, a stature of man that is measured only by the fullness of Christ. The idea of measure here comes from the Greek word metron, from where we derive our uh, present word, metric. The true way to measure the church, according to Ephesians 4.13, would be by the stature, a word that actually means the highest of maturation, by the full maturity of the presence of the fullness of Christ in our lives. The ultimate goal of the church would be the fullness of Christ present in every aspect of office and ministry and function. Our... Maturation should be measured not by how smart and well educated we have become in the things of the kingdom or or how strong and laborious we serve, but actually in how Christ and the fullness of who he is as God in the flesh becomes present throughout the entire existence of the church. John Wesley once wrote, I want the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, the whole world for my mission field. But he said this at the beginning, I want the whole Christ for my savior. When someone visits a local church, they should not leave saying, wow, what a great ministry, what great people, what, what a great sermon, what a great pastor, what a great song. What a a great worship leader. They should not leave with these thoughts in their mind. Ultimately, the thought should be, what a great Jesus. What a great Savior do these people have. And so may, may we live up to the reality of this fourth fact. We are a community fundamentally built upon the identity of Jesus Christ. The identity of Jesus doesn't just represent one of our goals. He is the goal. The identity of Jesus doesn't just become something that we hope shows up in a song or a sermon. No, he should be present in every song, every sermon, every act, every function, every ministry. In fact, we probably need to underline that word fundamental. Fundamentally built upon the identity of Jesus Christ. In fact, underlining is not good enough. We need to highlight it. We are a community fundamentally at our very core, built upon the identity of Jesus Christ. Now this takes us to our final fact of church as community. And for this, we move to one other place in the New Testament. If you would turn there, that would be great. Hebrews chapter 3. We move from Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. I could not conclude this list without this amazing reminder and as time quickly moves, I simply want to give you a brief summary of this text to emphasize this final fact of church's community. We are a community that genuinely expresses encouragement for one another. Uh, this becomes so important because we live in a day where you and I can easily experience discouragement. And the church is actually a place, the one place where you should be overwhelmingly encouraged. But at times I know that may not be your experience. I know at times I have had conversations with people who no longer attend church because of a relational conflict where they have felt some element of discouragement from another person. Oh, may it never be. May the church rise above those culturally uh, uh, produced conflicts. And may we be a place of true encouragement for one another. Uh, The reason that God points us to Hebrews chapter 3 is because of how vital is our encouragement for one another. Just hear these words as we close. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God, but instead encourage each other while the day is still called today so that none of you become hardened by sin's deception. Did you hear this? Encourage each other so that our hearts do not become Hardened by sin's deception, These verses point to an apostasy that was very apparent in the New Testament church and also reminiscent of the apostasy that was present in the lives of Israel. If you were to read backward in Hebrews chapter 3, particularly verses 7 down to verse 11, just prior to the passage we've just read, you would hear uh, of, of an exile, uh, an Exodus typology that actually was recorded in Psalm ninety-five of Israel's history when many had their hearts hardened in the rebellion in the wilderness. And that very uh, sad point of Israel's history was brought into the present of the first century church by the writer of this letter to the Hebrews with the emphasis, Do not allow anyone and and, and do not allow yourself to fall in to a place of apostasy where you just no longer desire God and desire Jesus and your heart becomes hardened. And I love how the antithesis to a hardened heart becomes encouragement. The emphasis is not attend more Bible studies, uh, memorize more scripture, uh, go back to school, earn earn a, a good merit attendance badge for your regular attendance at church. None of that is listed. We know that. That's very foolish to even consider that that would be a part of this text the significance of this text centers around the word encouragement. Your hearts will not be led to apostasy as you continue to be encouraged in your faith. The church expresses a community that genuinely encourages one another. Community is a place that genuinely expresses our desire to keep one another spurred on and, and encouraged. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 tells us to encourage one another As we gather together and not to forsake coming together. So while this virtual connection may be working for this time of teaching, this virtual connection does not work for true genuine togetherness and connectedness. That can result with encouragement. Oh, our faith needs to be encouraged. The very idea of encouragement comes from the old Greek word parakaleo, meaning to come alongside to be drawn together. It was a word that was used for the abiding Holy Spirit among God's people to come alongside and to speak from the side. So we are called to encourage each other, to be together, and to not allow any element of life to separate us. So what a powerful profile the scripture gives us of church as community. Uh, Let's review. Here are the five facts. The community of the church is a community of one new man, a community of supernatural existence, a community that prioritizes the presence of God, a community that is fundamentally built upon the identity of Jesus, and a community that expresses encouragement for one another. In August of 2004, someone walked out of a local Burger King restaurant and saw a man laying almost dead beside a dumpster. They eventually discovered that he had been attacked, and they called 911, and the emergency workers came, carried him to the hospital, and began administering care. He had significant wounds on his head from blunt force trauma, and he had amnesia. He could not remember who he was. But eventually, through a lot of therapy, he began to recall vaguely that perhaps his name might have been Benjamin, and maybe his last name, Kyle. He couldn't be for sure, but he decided that he would allow that to be his name. There was no record of him to be found immediately. And so here was someone who awakened uh, in a stupor, had been beaten to death, could not could not remember how he found himself in this place, could not remember his name, could not remember who he was or to whom he belonged. He was truly an isolated individual. But through the investigative work of 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 the, of the local uh, law enforcement. And, and through uh, DNA testing, they slowly began to put his identity together. And he soon discovered the community that he had become a part of. And he was eventually restored back to his identity and to the people who loved him. But I, I love the statement that Benjamin Kyle made about this trauma in his life. Now that I realize I have a community to identify with, I realize I'm not just a stranger. I belong. I have a story. Maybe you feel beaten up like Benjamin Kyle by something in the world that you really can't even explain. So maybe you're sitting where you are and you wonder, how did I I find myself here? How did I make decisions that led me here? Maybe you feel lost and isolated. I can assure you, based on the teaching of God's word, because of what Jesus did on the cross, you have a community. You belong. You have a story. And God desires that you realize that story. If you'll trust Jesus, and if you've trusted Jesus, and you know Him and your faith is in Him, know that you belong to the community of believers. You belong. You're not isolated. And you have a story. In a moment, there'll be a website location on our screen. That is for one purpose, for you to reach out to this community of faith so that we can respond to you and bring you more deeply in to a sense of belonging and understanding more about the love of Christ. I pray that you do belong to the church through your faith in Christ, but if not, we welcome you. We say our arms are open. Would you reach out? We desire to meet you where you are, because God is meeting all of us where we are. Oh, I pray that you will know the joy of community. And dear Christian, have you have you grown cold toward the church? Have you grown frustrated with the the human identity of how church sometimes operates, please don't. The church is the beautiful bride of Christ and we need each other and God created community and we can celebrate that we're a part of that community. Father God, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for teaching us through your word and thank you for the beauty of community that you've created. Guide us forward as your people as we continue to live out your life and the life of Jesus through the community we know as church. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Hey, happy Community Sunday. Love you a lot. See you next week as we continue our study in the mind matters. Talk to you soon.